Hello everyone, thank you for coming. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Elizabeth Ashford from the University of St Andrews who's going to talk to us about the infliction of severe poverty as the perfect crime. Thanks very much. So one of the things I find particularly striking about contemporary um, human rights discourse is that there's been widespread affirmation of a fundamental human right to subsistence. Um, but remarkably little acknowledgement that severe poverty constitutes a human rights violation, um, and even less specification and enforcement of determinate legally binding duties. Um, furthermore, I'll argue tonight that classifying severe poverty as a human rights violation can't be readily accommodated by either of the two main accounts of human rights violations the interactional and the institutional accounts. And the reason for that is that neither of these accounts can accommodate the complexity of the causal chains that result in people coming to be deprived of a realistic opportunity to obtain the means of subsistence. But what I'll argue is that an adequate account of human rights ought to acknowledge a third category of human rights violations that I'll call structural violations. Um, and furthermore, that it should classify severe poverty as a structural violation. Now, in analysing the notion of a human rights violation, there are two dangers to be avoided. On the one hand, of course, it's extremely important to avoid watering down the special moral force of the concept and diluting the currency of human rights. On the other hand, it's also important to be aware that our traditional conception of a human rights violation might reflect moral blind spots. In particular, it's important to avoid conceiving human rights violations in a way that would arbitrary, arbitrarily restrict the applicability of the concept to certain social contexts and rule out ex ante um, its applicability to some of the gravest and most prevalent contemporary threats to persons' basic interests that the combined effect of the interaction of a vast number of agents around the globe. So with regard to the right to subsistence, we should be sensitive to the ways in which persons come to be deprived of the means of subsistence, not through blatant direct plunder, you know, one person directly pillaging um, another's crops and so on, or through particular laws that are individually describable as inflicting severe poverty, but through more subtle mechanisms, including legal loopholes or a sheer absence of regulations. So with these two dangers in mind, on the one hand, not watering down the concept, um, and on the other, um, being aware of moral blind spots and not restricting it to certain social contexts, I'm going to offer two arguments in defense of the claim that subsistence deprivations constitute a structural violation that appeal only to morally minimal and uncontentious assumptions. The first argument appeals to the internal inconsistency of acknowledging a human right to subsistence without acknowledging subsistence deprivations as a human rights violation. That's a purely internal um, argument. Um, and furthermore, without specifying and enforcing regulations, compliance with which would avoid such deprivations. My second line of argument is that failure to classify as a violation structures that result in subsistence deprivations is inconsistent with the normative core of fundamental human rights. 
And with the two main accounts of their role um, as protecting persons' interests, persons' most basic interests, sorry, against standard threats, and as publicly and officially affirming each person's equal basic moral worth. Okay, so what I'm going to do in part one is briefly analyse the interactional and institutional accounts of human rights violations um, and explain why I don't find them applicable to um, the persistence of severe poverty. Um, and I'm going to focus in particular on uh, Thomas Pogger's um, very important and influential institutional account of human rights um, and argue that it's unnecessarily contentious. Uh, I'll then turn to the structural underpinnings of severe poverty, and I'm going to offer an evolutionary analysis of the patterns of behaviour that result in subsistence deprivations. Um, and I'll then argue that um, severe poverty should be classified as a structural violation. Okay, so section one, the interactional and the institutional accounts of human rights. Um, now, Thomas Pogger coins this distinction between interactional and institutional accounts, and he takes this distinction to be exhaustive, but I'm going to be arguing for a third category, structural violations. The interactional account of human rights violations basically takes the role of human rights to be that of um, constraining persons' direct interactions with one another and prohibiting the direct infliction of harm by a particular agent against a particular victim. So on this view, paradigmatic human rights violations are torture, um, grievous assault, and so on. In the case of the right to subsistence, an interactional violation involves one agent plundering or destroying another person's means of subsistence. But subsistence deprivations rarely arise from one particular agent's plundering or destroying a particular individual's means of subsistence. While, as I'll argue, plunder does play a central role in the structural underpinnings of severe poverty, it doesn't usually take an interactional form. It's usually a lot more complicated than that. So the obvious alternative is the institutional account. The institutional account of human rights takes them to be claims against coercively imposed social institutions. And I'm going to begin with current international law, and I'll then turn to Thomas Pogger's institutional analysis of severe poverty as a human rights violation. Current international law takes human rights to be claims principally against right holders' own governments. So it takes the principal role of human rights to be that of protecting citizens against violations perpetrated by their governments. Paradigm human rights violations are acts of mass atrocity perpetrated by um, or orchestrated by official agents against a civilian population. The development of international human rights law was heavily influenced by the Nuremberg trials, which prosecuted a handful of official agents for their role in masterminding a program of genocide. So the focus was on momentous policy decisions to implement the final solution and to orchestrate its logistics. Current international law um, applies this model to socioeconomic human rights, including the right to subsistence, and takes sole responsibility for respecting these rights and sole accountability for violations of them to be the right holder's own government. 
It takes the role of the international community to be that of enforcing or facilitating um, fulfillment of the primary duty to respect the right. <coughs> and thus um, protect right holders against violations perpetrated by their own governments. So that means that the international community is positioned in a remedial backup role um, to protect um, the right holders. This very framing seems to rule out ex ante the very possibility that the international community might actually be, um, might actually share responsibility for violating the right to subsistence. When this model is applied to violations of socioeconomic human rights, its purview tends to be limited to cases in which the violation of the right can be linked to arbitrary or discriminatory government conduct. And again, you can see the influence of the Nuremberg model. You've got to be able to pinpoint um, a specific wrongful decision by um, the right holder's own government. But um, I think this is completely inadequate when it comes to the right to subsistence. For one thing, um, it lacks any historical depth. Severe poverty is embedded in enduring economic structures. And every country now burdened with severe poverty had a history of being subjected to severe injustice by colonial powers. Now, insofar as affluent countries were enriched through the theft of natural and social resources from other countries, they owe some form of rectification to those other countries. So it follows that some of the resources um, of affluent countries rightly belong to other countries. An ongoing failure to pay the rectification that's owed constitutes a continuation of that theft, and that's been um, developed um, in a terrific book by um, Daniel Butt. Now, prior to decolonization, there was a rising tide of voices from colonized countries to a share of the riches of empire in order to enable fulfillment of their socioeconomic human rights. But with decolonization, that battle was um, finally lost and sole responsibility for um, respecting um, and fulfilling the socioeconomic rights of citizens was transferred um, to the governments of the newly decolonized countries, even though there was um, recognition that these governments lacked the infrastructure um, and other necessary capacities to fulfill the socioeconomic human rights of all their citizens. So instead of inferring that um, the previous colonial powers had a duty of rectification to help get these decolonized countries back on their feet after um, decades of colonial plunder, the right to subsistence was, in effect, watered down. Right? So in recognition of the limited resources of um, many poor countries, it was taken to be progressively realizable. Um, and that's why many people have argued that it's actually an aspiration and a goal and not um, a peremptory human right. So. Um, I think the transfer of sole responsibility uh, to right holders' own governments with decolonization functioned as a moral loophole by which um, the colonial powers could wash their hands of any um, historical legacy. Um, 
Another feature of the enduring nature of the economic structures that underpin severe poverty is that it's important to make reference to the impact on future generations of um, resource depletion and environmental degradation. Uh, which is another problem with the institutional model, which just focuses on specific um, policy decisions that take place over snapshots in time. Um, and arguably another form of plunder that um, plays a central role in the underpinning of subsistence deprivations is the way in which um, countries that are now affluent uh, became enriched by a process of industrialization that we now know involved using up way more than an equitable share of the world's um, resources and absorptive capacity. Um, finally, uh, a third problem with the, um, the model in international law, which takes sole responsibility to lie with right holders' own governments, is um, it lacks any geographical width. Um, and I'll come on to that in a minute, um, looking at Thomas Pogger's institutional account of human rights. Um, in a way, this is the opposite end of the spectrum. Thomas Pogger argues that there's a coercively imposed global institutional order, the operation of which is responsible for the infliction of most existing severe poverty. He argues that this constitutes a massive human rights violation and a crime against humanity. And he takes direct responsibility for this violation to lie with official agents of this global institutional order, um, who he takes to be responsible for the design of its rules. So this is a top-down model of responsibility for violations of the right to subsistence according to which direct responsibility for the violation uh, lies with official agents of the global institutional order on the ground that most existing severe poverty is the predictable result of policy decisions these agents knowingly make and coercively impose, acting in their official capacity within an authoritative decision-making structure. And I'm going to read this uh, important quotation from him, which is on the handout, that halfway down the first page. Responsibility for decisions that foreseeably result in millions of avoidable deaths rests in the first instance with the politicians and negotiators who make them. Such people have knowingly committed some of the largest human rights violations the world has ever seen. And he actually draws a comparison between these decisions and the decision to implement the final solution. He takes the responsibility of individual citizens in affluent countries to be that of avoiding collaborating in the violation. And he draws a, a parallel between um, our responsibility to avoid collaborating in this violation and the responsibility of citizens in Nazi Germany to avoid collaborating in the genocide perpetrated by Nazi officials. So he's, um, in a way, applying the Nuremberg model um, to um, the persistence of severe poverty. Um, but his argument, not surprisingly perhaps, has been extremely controversial. Um, 
And I think there are three main aspects of it that have been particularly controversial. One is that the attempt to identify policy decisions knowingly made by official agents of the global institutional order that are plausibly describable as um, inflicting most existing severe poverty um, is extremely controversial. As has been widely argued, global social institutions lack the authoritative decision-making structure of domestic social institutions. Um, they function more as um, fora for trade negotiations between countries, rather than having an independent decision-making um, capacity and authority. Furthermore, the staff are generally highly motivated to make a contribution to development and the reduction of severe poverty, but they're hampered in their effort to translate this moral purpose into practical action, in large part precisely because they lack authoritative decision-making powers to specify and coordinate global policies directed at ending severe poverty. Now, it has been compellingly argued that um, many of the officials within these organizations who um, tend to be economists um, lack um, a grasp of the, the bigger picture of the overall impact of macroeconomic policies on global poverty, uh, which several economists have, have argued um, tends to be obstructed by certain complacent economic assumptions or by a narrow focus on technically difficult calculations within their area of expertise, rather than just looking at the bigger picture. Um, Kaushik Basu has recently um, argued um, that case. He was previous chief economist of the World Bank. Um, but the problem there, I think, is a reluctance to move beyond the area of expertise, economics. Um, and actually look at the um, overall impact on global poverty of uh, macroeconomic policies. Where it has become sufficiently clear that the policies of these organizations do lead directly to subsistence deprivations, the IMF and the World Bank have indeed changed their policies. Now, another candidate for the official agents of the global institutional order um, that could be identified as perpetrators of the violation are um, the individual governments of affluent nations. Um, but as Saladin McLeod Garcia has argued, it's generally the case that the decisions these government officials make don't in themselves tend to inflict severe poverty on anyone. So he argues that it's generally not possible to pinpoint specific policy decisions by official agents that are plausibly describable as in themselves um, inflicting severe poverty. He further argues that individual governments' decisions to best promote their country's economic interests are not clearly unreasonable. So he concludes that it's not possible to identify a directed wrong parallel to that of um, the Nazi genocide or that of enslavement, which are the analogies that um, Pogger appeals to. Um, and I think, I think this is an important objection. I think that the Nuremberg model doesn't quite um, fit. A second highly controversial aspect of Pogger's argument is his empirical claim that most existing severe poverty is engendered by global social institutions. 
So it's been widely argued that he exaggerates the role played by global social institutions and underestimates the role played by domestic factors. Um, and because, this, because he makes um, a fairly extreme empirical claim there, a lot of the debate about his argument has focused on that claim, um, which I think is a shame because um, there is widespread agreement that the domestic poverty thesis, according to which the roots of severe poverty are purely internal to poor countries, is um, also highly implausible. That in itself is an extreme and highly contentious claim. Um, so there is, in fact, widespread agreement that um, certain features of global economic interaction do play a significant role in um, the persistence of severe poverty which is in itself an extremely important um, claim. A third contentious component of Pogger's argument is his analysis of the negative duty he takes to be correlative to the right to subsistence. Okay, it's central to his argument that he wants to focus on <coughs> negative duties not to inflict severe poverty on people rather than positive duties of aid. Um, but his account of the negative duty is the duty not to collaborate without compensation in the coercive imposition of social institutions under which there are deficits of reasonably secure access to the means of subsistence that could feasibly and reasonably be avoided under alternative social institutions. So that's quite a convoluted account of what he takes to be a correlative duty, right? the duty that logically follows from the right to subsistence. Um, not to deprive people of the means of subsistence. And it's been widely argued that it's neither really um, negative or correlative, and he's smuggling in um, a lot of positive elements to the duty. Um, basically, he's focusing on feasibly avoidable subsistence deficits, but the critics have argued that... Um, there he's actually appealing to the positive duty to implement measures that would get rid of those subsistence deficits. And in fact, Pogger himself argues that the term underfulfillment of the right to subsistence may be more appropriate than the term violation. But the worry is that he therefore ends up watering down the force of his original claim that the operation of the global institutional order constitutes a massive human rights violation and a crime against humanity, which can be compared with um, other acts of genocide. So while he starts out with the claim that the global institutional order is responsible for the infliction of most existing severe poverty, he then offers a philosophically contentious analysis of the negative duty, in light of which he concludes that the term under fulfillment um, is more applicable. So what I want to do in the rest of the paper is offer an alternative defense of the claim that severe poverty constitutes a human rights violation, that defends some of Hogger's core insights without relying on the controversial aspects of his argument. Um, and it does retain the full force of the notion of violation, unlike the notion of underfulfillment. So my argument differs from Pogger's in three main respects. First, unlike Pogger, I do take the right to subsistence to impose positive as well as negative duties, but um, here I'm just going to focus on the negative duties. Um, and I think it's important to, to separate the two um, for two main reasons. 
First, the special moral force of the negative duty not to actively deprive people of the means of subsistence and thereby actively cause their physical deterioration or death can be seen most clearly if it's sharply differentiated from the positive duty to lift people out of poverty. Um, though, as I've argued as well, the positive duty um, is of the utmost urgency as well. Um, and second, non-fulfillment of the negative duty not to actively deprive people of the means of subsistence has to constitute a violation um, if we do recognize the right to subsistence. So unlike Pogger's um, fairly convoluted account of the correlative duty, I'm just taking the negative duty correlative to the right to subsistence to be the duty not to deprive people of the means of subsistence. So if you acknowledge your right to subsistence, you've got to acknowledge um, this negative correlative duty. Um, the second respect in which my argument differs from Pogger's is that I rely um, only on the uncontentious empirical claim that the root causes of severe poverty are not purely domestic. Um, so it's compatible with a multidimensional analysis of these causes. So you don't have to get um, distracted in um, debates about the role of um, certain policies of um, the global institutional order. Um, to try and focus attention on what I take to be the key question, which is whether some aspects of um, global economic structures contribute to severe poverty, and whether there are feasible reforms that would avoid this. Right? Um, so I'm not making the claim that the um, global institutional order is responsible for the infliction of most severe poverty. It's just the claim that some aspects of global economic structures significantly contribute to severe poverty. And that claim, in fact, is very widely accepted, including by many leading economists. Um, third, my argument doesn't single out official agents of a coercive global institutional order as the perpetrators of the violation. Um, and take the responsibility of individual agents to be that of avoiding collaborating with the violation perpetrated by official agents. The notion of a structural violation shifts the moral focus to the combined effects of ongoing patterns of behavior themselves. It's getting away altogether from um, the violator model of um, responsibility for human rights violation. Okay, um, so here goes. By, um, by the term structure, I mean any patterned behavior. So there's no assumption that um, the ongoing patterns of behavior that result in um, actively depriving some people of the means of subsistence can be traced back to specific policy decisions um, by official agents. Um, patterns of behavior can emerge um, from um, mores and norms and fulfillment of role responsibilities and so on. Um, and a crucial part of the explanation can, I'll argue, be um, the absence of laws um, allowing for uh, legal and moral loopholes. Um, so you don't need to be able to pinpoint a specific law that's individually describable as inflicting severe poverty. Um, and 
another crucial feature of a structural analysis of um, severe poverty, which just focuses on um, the predictable effect of um, the ongoing patterns of behavior themselves, is that it can have historical depth and um, extend into the future, right? Because um, if you take severe poverty to be embedded in enduring economic structures, then um, an adequate analysis of it is going to have to look at the historical roots of um, the severe poverty and include the impact on future generations um, of resource depletion and environmental degradation. Given the implausibility of the domestic poverty thesis, according to which the root causes of severe poverty are purely internal, an adequate structural analysis of the underpinnings of severe poverty is also going to have to have um, geographical width and appeal to um, those aspects of global um, economic interaction, which have had um, mixed or adverse effects on enjoyment of socioeconomic rights. who um, I mentioned before, um, the, the former chief economist of the World Bank, um, gives an analysis of severe poverty um, as follows. He says, Ex exploitation, conquest, and property grabbing are alive and well, just as the modern world tries to plug the loopholes of blatant exploitation, human beings and governments discover newer and less obvious ways of exploiting. Whole nations, groups, and masses of people are being continuously outwitted and impoverished through complex financial maneuvers, the discovery of loopholes in the law, and the new opportunities that economic globalization opens up and the lagging processes of social and political globalization leaves vulnerable to plunder. Um, and I think this analysis um, is particularly plausible. So... Um, it's in a way a sort of Kafkaesque analysis of rule by um, nobody. Um, so you can't pinpoint um, specific decisions that are individually describable as um, inflicting severe poverty. Um, and I actually, I think an evolutionary analysis of the structures that um, have this effect is the most plausible. An evolutionary analysis is in terms of the selection and staying power of certain norms and the striking absence of others. Now, pervasive impact, uh, sorry, a pervasive feature of contemporary social um, context is that many aspects of our lives are structured by complex bureaucratic organizations, which feature a complex division of labor. So the, the culture of business organizations tends to conceive employees' role responsibilities in terms of maximizing shareholder profit. These business organizations are therefore liable to oppose and restrict the introduction of regulations that would, um, that would reduce their profit. 
Governments take the principal mandate um, and role responsibility to be to maximise domestic economic growth um, and seek the best terms for trade and so on. So these powerful economic agents tend to focus on pursuing their role responsibilities conceived in terms of maximising the economic interests of those to whom they have special responsibilities, their shareholders, citizens, and so on, without taking personal responsibility for, or perhaps even giving much thought to, the bigger picture, the combined effect of all this um, in terms of severe poverty. And in conjunction with this, there's no global agency with an authoritative decision-making structure officially charged with regulating global economic interaction in a way that would avoid subsistence deprivations. Um, so as the critics of POGA have pointed out, um, international economic institutions such as the World Bank and so on do principally function as fora for agreements between states on trade tariffs or their removal, and they lack the independent authoritative decision-making power um, to introduce and enforce regulations to combat severe poverty. So against this background, powerful business organisations and the governments of affluent countries have a greater bargaining power in trade negotiations. They also have a greater influence on the formation of laws and regulations in international institutions, such as by diverting the agenda prior to the voting process and so on. And the predictable overall combined effect is that the norms and policies that come to be selected and reinforced tend to be those that promote the economic interests of powerful economic actors, and by contrast, norms and rules that represent and protect the interests of the global poor don't come to be selected. However, the devastating impact on the global poor can't be attributed on this analysis to specific laws made knowingly and intentionally by official agents that are in themselves plausibly describable as inflicting severe poverty. Rather, they emerge principally from legal loopholes and the weakness of um, global political structures. Um, and the absence of coordinated global rules that would regulate global economic interaction in a way that would protect against subsistence deprivations. So, um, on one level, this can be seen as a form of rule by nobody, in that you can't pinpoint um, any uh, intentional decision to inflict severe poverty. However, I think the evolutionary um, analysis of the norms that emerge, and in particular, um, the laws um, and norms that don't emerge, highlight two salient features of them. First, um, they reflect a marked absence of attention to and concern for the combined effect on the global poor. Um, and the absence of a concerted effort to implement coordinated global policies um, and regulations compliance with which would prevent subsistence deprivations. Um, and second, they do, I think, reflect um, moral loopholes. In fact, as I argued, the, the state-based model of responsibility for severe um, poverty uh, constitutes a moral loophole in itself. Okay, so um, I'm now going to turn to two arguments as to why this should nevertheless be seen as a structural violation 
even though you can't pinpoint any particular action that um, individually um, deprives a particular victim of the means of subsistence, and even though you can't pinpoint any specific policy decision um, that's individually describable as inflicting severe poverty. The first argument um, is an internal inconsistency argument. So this is towards the bottom of page two of the handout. Now, as I emphasized, the duty I'm focusing on is the straightforward correlative duty not to deprive people of the means of subsistence. So adequate acknowledgement of a, a human right to subsistence has to um, entail acknowledgement of this duty. The object of the human right to subsistence is reasonably secure access to the means of subsistence. So if you do acknowledge this right, um, it logically follows that um, you have to acknowledge the negative duty not to deprive people of or jeopardize their access to the means of subsistence. There's widespread agreement that much severe poverty should be attributed to structures that actively deprive persons of or jeopardize their access to the means of subsistence. So um, even on this philosophically uncontentious account of the negative duty correlative to the right to subsistence, it is being violated on a vast scale. So genuine acknowledgement of human rights subsistence um, entails classifying this um, as a human rights violation um, and prohibiting such treatment by specifying and enforcing a schema of regulations that would avoid it. So if you then plug in um, the um, uncontentious empirical assumption that the underlying structural causes of subsistence deprivations are not plausibly confined to poor countries themselves, then I think it logically follows that um, the international community shares some significant degree of responsibility for a large-scale violation of a fundamental human right. While the structural underpinnings of, severe, uh, of subsistence deprivations are immensely complex, this complexity shouldn't obscure the fact that what the combined effects of the ongoing patterns of behavior add up to um, is to deprive a vast number of the object of a widely affirmed um, fundamental human right. Um, and I think that offers a response to the challenge that Saladin McLeod Garcia poses to Pogger of what does the directed wrong consist in? It consists in um, depriving people of the means of subsistence. Yes, the causal story is extremely complicated, um, but um, an adequate account of human rights shouldn't be restricted to simple causal chains. Um, ongoing patterns of behavior that predictably result in depriving a vast number of the means of subsistence can actually be analyzed as structural violence in the literal sense because the structures are um, causing persons physical deterioration, the blighting of their lives and likely premature death. Now, one crucial role of fundamental rights is to serve as a benchmark by which to assess whether existing legal, legal systems themselves, along with prevalent moral codes, are minimally just. A classic example of this was the fundamental uh, moral challenge that the right against slavery posed to moral norms and legal systems 
that sanctioned um, and legally enforced behaviour that should have been recognised as constituting a human rights violation. So these institutions were flagrantly unjust. They're actually um, enforcing behaviour that should have been recognised as a human rights violation. But there's also, I think, a subtler and more insidious way in which legal, economic and social structures can fail to recognise a fundamental human right. And that is officially acknowledging the right, but failing to identify as a violation activities that predictably deprive people of the object of the right. And so fail to implement legislation that would restrict such activities so as to avoid the deprivations. So the legal loophole takes the form of subverting existing legislation or resisting the introduction of legal reforms that put constraints on activities that predictably end up depriving persons of the object of the right by making sure that those activities um, are never labelled as constituting a human rights violation. Um, and in the case of um, environmental degradation and so on, that's likely to involve strategies such as obfuscation concerning the impact of the activities or claiming that further research is needed before concrete steps to introduce legislation um, can be taken. So hoping to postpone indefinitely um, the introduction of such legislation. So this kind of structural violation can, I think, be analysed um, using a term from liberation theology as the effacement or erasure of those suffering severe poverty. People's, um, people come to be predictably deprived of the means of subsistence, which ought to be recognised as a human rights violation, but there, there is, in fact, no recognition, either in prevalent moral norms or in the law, that they have been grievously wronged by this. Okay, and the last argument, so that was an internal inconsistency argument, that it's, um, it's inconsistent to affirm a human right to subsistence without um, recognising as a violation structures that predictably um, result in people coming to be deprived of the means of subsistence. The next argument um, turns to the moral core of fundamental human rights, which I take to be um, affirmation that each person has moral status and can therefore justifiably demand not to be treated in ways that are fundamentally incompatible with that moral status. And what I now want to do is offer an account of um, sufficient conditions for constituting a human rights violation, for coming into the category of treatment that is fundamentally incompatible with minimally adequate recognition of each, moral, each person's moral status. Um, an account of the sufficient conditions for constituting human rights violation that's so morally minimal that rejection of them can't be credibly held to be compatible with um, recognition of each person's moral status. So I should emphasize I'm just giving an account of sufficient conditions, which I'm hoping to keep as um, minimal and uncontentious as possible. It's by no means a set of necessary and sufficient conditions by which to analyze the notion of a human rights violation. Now there's much debate, of course, over what grounds the universal moral status of persons and what kinds of treatment are fundamentally incompatible with minimally adequate acknowledgement of that moral status. But I take it to be uncontroversial that a sufficient condition for constituting such treatment is that the treatment predictably, avoidably, and unjustifiably inflicts extremely severe harms, the kinds of harms that are liable to blight or altogether destroy persons' lives. 
um, ruinous suffering. The claim that the unjustifiable infliction of ruinous suffering constitutes a human rights violation is, I take it, uncontroversial to the point of having an air of tautology. The substantive debate, of course, concerns the question of what constitutes the unjustifiable infliction of ruinous suffering. But I also take it to be uncontentious that the infliction of severe harms is um, unjustifiable if the harms are foreseeable, could be avoided at fairly moderate economic cost to every duty bearer, and are not justified by any weighty, countervailing moral considerations. The affliction of these harms is flagrantly incompatible with minimally adequate recognition of the moral value of the lives that do end up being um, predictably blighted or destroyed. James Griffin appeals to the notion of the discarding of persons' lives, and I think that can be applied to um, this kind of case. Um, inflicting ruinous suffering or death merely to avoid an economic cost, and moreover, one that's not immoderate, um, involves um, treating people's lives as of no value, um, as, of, uh, as merely disposable, like rubbish. Um, okay. So applying this to um, the structural underpinnings of subsistence deprivations, um, I think that the conditions I just outlined are um, met. it's clear that severe poverty blights or destroys the lives of millions of people each year. Second, um, it's also clear that much severe poverty should be attributed to global and domestic structures that predictably deprive persons of the means of subsistence. Um, although, um, as I mentioned, how responsibility for this should be divided between domestic and global factors is hugely contentious. Third, um, given the overall level of economic, social, and technological global resources, it's well within our human capacity to avoid depriving anyone of the means of subsistence without imposing an immoderate cost on any agent. So the relevant capacity here is what could be made possible under feasible alternative structures by the introduction of coordinated um, global policies. So the third premise is that there are feasible structures that would avoid depriving persons of the means of subsistence. The fourth premise is that there are no countervailing weighty moral considerations that might justify um, the infliction of this harm. So the sufficient conditions that I outlined for constituting um, a human rights violation are met. This argument can, I think, be reinforced by considering that it's entailed by each of the two main accounts of the role of human rights, the protection of persons' basic interests against standard threats, and the official affirmation of each person's moral status. Structural violations constitute an actual and ongoing threat to the basic interests of a vast number, and moreover, a threat that could be avoided without immoderate cost. Uh, those suffering severe poverty tend to be from the outset precluded from any realistic chance of a minimally decent life. Uh, and moreover, their vulnerability is compounded by the danger of being invisible to the agents who together unwittingly cause their plight. 
So let's turn to the um, other main account of the role of human rights affirming persons' universal moral status. The focus is usually on um, the intentional targeting of um, individuals and the affront to human dignity that poses. Now, structural violations don't involve the intentional targeting of certain persons or um, the official relegation of certain categories of persons to an inferior social status, as of course happened um, in Nazi Germany and in um, slave-owning societies. However, I've argued that the lives that end up blighted or destroyed as a predictable result of um, agents' ongoing shared failure to have implemented um, laws and regulations that would prohibit this harm effectively do not count. As I've argued, they're discarded. And again, I think the terms erasure and effacement are apt. So the lives are unjustifiably blighted or destroyed um, without any recognition that they've been gravely wronged. So they're blighted or destroyed not through being targeted, but by the sheer absence of attention to um, their plight, to the combined effect on the global poor of um, existing structures. So going back to the evolutionary account, um, which highlighted the way in which the norms and laws that emerge reflect an absence of um, concern for um, the combined effect on the global poor. That's the kind of affront to human dignity that I think structural violations pose. So um, I think that provides a second way of responding to another of um, Saladin MacLeod Garcia's pr principal critiques of Pogger's institutional um, account of severe poverty as a human rights violation. Okay, MacLeod Garcia argues to recall that it's not possible to pinpoint any decision that constitutes a directed wrong um, understood as um, imposing an unreasonable trade-off between the agent's aims and interests and the aims and interests of others. And he emphasizes that it's not clearly unreasonable for governments to um, maximize the GDP, given that they have the electoral imperative towards their citizens to best promote their economic interests. But if we apply the criterion of what constitutes an unreasonable trade-off to the combined effect of global economic interaction, itself um, and specifically the combined effect on the global poor, um, we can, I think, see that the patterns instantiate a trade-off that's blatantly unreasonable. Okay, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much.